You have reached the Geek Elite. Good luck. Hey, Mitch! On tonight's episode of Hey Mitch, I have a very special guest uh, from the Certain POV Network and his own podcast, Saturday Morning Confidential or Confessional? Confidential. Confidential. I knew that. I was just messing with you. (laughs) Maddie Limerick. Hi. Well, hey, Mitch. How's it going? (laughs) It's going great. I, You know, the first time... uh, we interacted was when mm-hmm. uh, we were part of a read through for a script that Case wrote, and after yes, that, yeah. <laughs> and then after that, we uh, we I think I we hung out a little bit uh, with Brett and Sam virtually, mm-hmm. uh, and then you had me on your podcast, and I just want to thank you for uh, having me on. Uh, of course, it was such a fun time, and it gave me an excuse to watch one of my favorite nostalgic movies. So, <laughs> you know, it's always good. And I'm really, you know, I've I've always worried because you know they say as you get older in life, it's harder for people to make friends, especially guys. But I'm loving now that I'm podcasting and we're going between different networks because I'm making all of these like. You know, I feel like kind of like a teenager again in the early days of the internet. We're making friends and all these things. So thank you for being on my shows. And now thank you for having me on your show. It's all sorts of podception, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what is Saturday Morning Confidential? So Saturday Morning Confidential uh, originally started as a podcast called Dole Up in Dreams, where every other week I would take a deep dive into the Disney vault. Um, and as fun as that was for our first year, we did a full year with that. Um, I wanted to broaden the range and talk about nostalgia from a standpoint of uh, a useful conversation or a proactive conversation um because you know the nostalgia guy was huge and the nostalgia chick was huge i mean Lindsay ellis has gone on to do incredible things and i love what she's done but i find a lot of times um nostalgia can be a really delicate conversation and so i wanted to frame it from the idea of how are artists creators people of you know our generations who were i think so massively affected by the media we were put in front of what some of their favorite media was but also how that media has influenced what they do as artists creators podcasters the list goes on um and that's kind of how it started because i also was just i was sad when i was like oh i want to talk about don bluth movies but all i do is disney so i can't (laughs) and i don't need to start another podcast and so we branched out a little and that's where it started and it's been really interesting the titles people have brought um some things i wouldn't necessarily consider nostalgia but it so has affected how they do what they do whether it's writers or or musicians and those things and so it's actually all kind of immediately brought in in a way that i wasn't expecting but it's been for the better so that's just a little bit about what saturday morning confidential is um i mean we've had everything I think our seventh episode is about to premiere, which is a Pokemon crossover for their anniversary. I mean, I've talked about, we started with Jim and the holograms, but we've talked Steven universe. I had Dan Purcell on and we talked nostalgic music, like a high school hit list. Um, I have uh, an amazing uh, true crime writer named VP coming on uh, this week. Uh, And so just after our episode, which is about the Goonies, um, I'm even talking gone girl. And so like, we are really covering the gamut and like, case is going to be on talking the original my little pony so like i'm literally covering everything on this show um and talking about it in a way that we can frame how we use nostalgia um instead of because nostalgia uh, case and i always talk about how nostalgia goggles can be the detriment of a franchise and often kill new franchises i.e like 
the new Thundercats that came out probably about 10 years ago, mm-hmm. the nostalgia was so hard for the original that the older people didn't give the new one an a chance and so the ratings just weren't there for cartoon network to keep it and then after they all went oh fuck this is really good and we were like yeah you should have watched it assholes so oh yeah so i would like us to it was so good and the animation was great and so i think it was a way for us to reframe this conversation to discuss how we're going to kind of further create and be inspired by those things that came before us so, I mean, how, how exactly, well, first, how, how do you exactly, uh, define nostalgia? Oh, that's so hard. Um, because nostalgia ultimately, I think nostalgia is a concept, but it's also a feeling. And I think it's easier to put our thumb on that feeling. And it's a different feeling for each of us. Like for me, the world suddenly feels like I'm drinking hot cocoa. And I'm wrapped in a nice blanket Um, (laughs) and I have to smile. So like uh, I was just doing our Pokemon episode that's coming out soon. And while, you know, the anime is not great. I just smiled through it. It was just so nice. Um, When Dan and I talked about music, it was really nice to really go back and look at the songs that I still subconsciously will repeat over and over again, or I will go through with certain emotional things. So for me, it's that feeling, but nostalgia, I think ultimately for me is anything that we look back on with fondness from a time before, um, that has influenced our development in any way, shape or form. And being a kid who was born in the mid eighties, uh, but was raised in front of a babysitter. For me, a lot of that is those animated, properties from the eighties um, or uh, being a weird queer kid. It was the fact that my dad put me down in front of musicals. When I was little, we had Xanadu on Betamax and sound of music on VHS. And so <laughs> those are those things where I will sit down and they just make me smile or they uh, ultimately connect me to a generation that comes b- from before, which I think is an important part of that concept of nostalgia. So, you know, to give you a non answer, it's a feeling it's, it's, it's a concept. And I think for each of us, it's going to be separate, but I think a lot of people take that and they're so afraid of someone taking that experience away that they tend to weaponize nostalgia. Mm. Um, because, you know, we're dealing with this, and I think it's how we've seen this kind of toxic fandom create, and it's a way of people are so afraid that someone's going to take that nostalgia away from them. Um, and I think it's also broadly kind of tied to cancel culture as well. Um, well, which I also like to think of as like accountability culture. Yes. Um, and so there are all these, it's a really complex and dynamic concept. And I think for each of us, it means something different, but I think the point of the show is I want us to hone into that. What we feel is important and how we connect with something is important. And no one's going to take that away from you because nobody else has that experience with a property that you have. And that's the most important part of nostalgia is it is such a, it's the most self-centered thing we can be. It's the most egotistical and narcissistic thing is because nostalgia is going to be different for each of us. Um, and that's what I think we have to hold on to with nostalgia is that it is about us in that moment. And we have to understand that other people will have different experiences with those same properties. And it's great when we find people that have a similar experience, but we shouldn't get scared or run away from people who have a different experience because it doesn't invalidate our experience with it. I like that. I like that a lot. So if it originally it started off with as Dole Whip and Dreams, what was your mm-hmm. connection to uh to Disney? Like I mean, was it was that just Ooh. where your 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 nostalgia mostly lied? So I come from a very religious family. Very, very religious Southern Baptist family. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Which fun story. I'm going to tangent for a moment. My church that I I was in a, like one of those 3000 member evangelical Christian Southern Baptist churches was featured on NPR as one of the leading white supremacy cult organizations attached to QAnon. Wow. In contemporary America recently, it's called Spotswood Baptist church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I'm calling you out. Um, (laughs) You tried to splinter my family and send me to conversion therapy and you all are getting what you deserve now. Um, but yeah, so that's just, I come from that kind of evangelical background. Um, and so uh, we didn't have cable. We had an antenna. Um, once I was no longer at a babysitter and my mom decided to stay home and 
be a homemaker instead of continuing with the job she had. So for me, a lot of what I watched was Disney movies because that was the time the Disney vault was opening and Disney finally caved. And instead of fighting Sony on the creation of Betamax and VHS, they leaned into it. So most of the readily available VHS we had or were available at our library were, um, either religious things like shout out to my adventures on odyssey kids um uh which were great i love them um and like disney movies so disney i was a disney family through and through we didn't go to the parks until i was over 21 just because you know you don't always realize when you're younger that you're from a lower middle class family and that your family's kind of poor um and you know it was also the 90s it was a weird time to be going to disney um but yeah, Disney has always been intrinsically such a part of my upbringing, along with like the Muppets. My dad's a huge Jim Henson fan, which, you know, Disney owns the Muppets now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I also came up in the time when like Muppets Treasure Island and uh, Muppets Christmas Carol were a thing. And it was Disney and they were some of the best things that came out of the 90s. Um, and so those things kind of intrinsically. And then as I grew into adulthood, I became we're talking about toxic fandoms, the dreaded Disney adult and the even worse subject, the Disney gay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, And so I did the college program, like a lot of people and being a theater artist, I am for anyone listening who doesn't know who I am. I'm a costume designer by trade. I have my master's in it. Um, But I love large scale theatrics in a way of how do we tell stories non-verbally and Disney does something with their parks in a way that almost no one else does. Universal's getting there. Um, But kind of the large scale stories of pure theatricality and music um, uh, magic that Disney does. So all of that kind of combined into being a crazy Disney adult. Um, And when I moved to Florida for graduate school, we were only 90 minutes from Disney. So all of that kind of budgeted into me being, you know, I'm a white guy that's got a microphone, got to have a podcast. Right. Um, (laughs) Right. So, but I wanted to talk about Disney movies beyond, are they good? Are they bad? Are they effective? How does it affect storytelling? How is the company evolved in their storytelling and how they revolutionized animation, um, how they impeded other companies? Um, I also wanted to talk the dramaturgy. So a lot of what we talk about and all of those Dole Whip and Dreams episodes are available online still uh, through Saturday Morning Confidential, um, which I'm sure we'll get to a pitch at the end. But um I wanted to talk sociopolitically about the concepts of the films, what we're talking about was happening in history at the time. And so it's not just being like, Oh, we loved it. Like we just, I had the very last episode. I sat down with uh, actor David Wen and we talked about the social and political ramifications of Mulan 2020. um, And like what that says for Disney as a company and also like Chinese trade agreements, um, but also sitting down and talking about Peter Pan in an aspect of that. We love it, but also like Disney's really shitty racist legacy and also just uh, legacy. So I wanted to talk about the good and the bad. um, And so those things were important. And so there's a lot of Disney parks podcasts, but at the time there weren't a lot of Disney movie podcasts. And I was like, well, let's do it. Fuck it. Let's do it. I need a project. And so that's where Dole Open dreams came from. And, uh, certain POV picked it up rather quickly. Cause case and I go rather far back. Um, and so, yeah, that's how Dole Open dreams started. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was just kind of a thing that happened. <laughs> um, I was guesting with Matt Storm on another pass with Case. We were doing Spice World, and they were like, so what do you have coming up? And I had been thinking about it, and I was like, uh, we're launching a Disney movie podcast on Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> and that was like July, and so I was like, cool, I guess I've got three months to launch a podcast, and it just happened. So, <laughs> so I mean, that that's great, and you, you talked, uh, you know, you said earlier how the nostalgia influenced who you are mm-hmm. as an adult. How did getting your master's in uh, theatrical costuming, or uh, how you said, mm-hmm. um, influence how you watch these movies? So it's really interesting because Disney imagery is become synonymous with pop culture iconography. Um, like, there is not a more notable fashion in. I see this. Uh, this is a loaded kind of 
statement. One of the largest fashion icons of the 20th century is Mickey Mouse, not from the aspect of how he dressed, but Mickey Mouse has been featured from the highest and most elite couture brands on runways to the lowest fast fashion brand and has endured since its create since his creation um but disney we know every disney princess and what those dresses look like and you know we look at them and we go huh well i guess we always have to see bell in that yellow dress <laughs> it's um you know it, it kind of led me to start looking and going okay well let's talk historiography his through a lens of history <laughs> Just, um of like, okay, so let's talk about, you know, or like an example of the new live action Beauty and the Beast. They decided to try to find a moment in time where for Hollywood for a very, very long time, um, and I'm going to reference the like biblical historical movies of the 50s and 60s that were just giant and broad, like mm-hmm. Ben-Hur and Cleopatra with Liz Taylor. Mm-hmm. They looked like the 1950s and 60s does Egypt. There wasn't a lot of historical research. And so I wanted to start kind of talking about that as well. And so it's that idea of looking at how contemporary fashion of the time affected those movies as well. Like Belle and Ariel, their dresses are immediately impacted by the fact that they were created in like 88, 89 and 90, 91. Those (laughs) things like their dresses are a direct callback of the era that they're created in, not an era that they take place in because really in those fairy tales, it doesn't matter where in what in time bell and the beast exist. It just matters that they exist. It doesn't matter where in time Ariel is. It just matters that she gets her prince in the end. Um, and so a lot of those things are fun to look at because we're having the conversation of does Disney need to make live action remakes where they are trying to, you know, Beauty and the Beast, they found a moment in France's history that they plopped that story. And, you know, it's interesting to talk about, did they do their homework, how they did their homework? Um, And so for me, kind of studying costuming or studying being like, okay, well, how would I then do that? Or, you know, I worked on the summer before I started Dole Whip and Dreams, I worked on a production of Beauty and the Beast and we used a rental package. And I go, what would be the ramifications if you as an audience member came and saw Disney's Beauty and the Beast and Belle was not in a yellow dress? How does that affect the story? Mm-hmm. Does it matter? Also, is that a hill that I need to die on as a designer? <laughs> like when I'm in the room with the director and I go, what if we put Belle in a blue dress and she's in yellow in the beginning? What is that change about the character? Or, you know, even talking outside of Disney, what happens when I go, all right, let's do Shrek. We're doing Shrek. What if we made Shrek the musical look like the original hand-drawn pencil storybook animation versus the DreamWorks animation. What does that mean for our audience when they're walking in to see the story? And it's a story they know, but it doesn't look like the story they know. So for me, it's been as a designer, I always think of ourselves as visual dramaturgs. And so the idea of a dramaturg is that person that works with a director and a creative team to make sure that the research of the time is done correctly. So we know historically what's happening, what wars are happening, what is the class structure system? What is money like? What are fabrics like? Those things. And as a designer, that's my job to do as well. I have to do my research. I need to know color palettes and fabrics and what's happening. Where are we in international trade agreements? What do they have access to? And so for me, that's where it's uh, really fun to kind of look at these classics and go, did they really do a good job or are we just so tied to what we know that, you know, you can't go and see Mary Poppins if Mary Poppins isn't in a long blue coat and a black hat with cherries or does Eliza Doolittle have to be in black and white when she goes to the Ascot? Is it more powerful if she walks in in fuchsia or if she walks in in blue and white and black? There are those, that idea of we have this one idea of what something should look like. So when that is challenged by a designer or a director, what does that mean? Um, Which is interesting then to flip that into recreating animated visions in something like a theme park or in a large scale Broadway theatrics when someone is paying 
a hundred, you know, as Frozen as an example, what happens when you pay $150 for a ticket to go see Frozen on Broadway and the quick change doesn't work into the Elsa ice dress? <laughs> what does that mean as a designer? And so that's where a lot of these things inspire me. Also, just the nostalgia of growing up with things like Jim and the Holograms and Power Rangers. I tend to work on more new theater pieces, things that are phantasmic, things that are strange and unusual. Um, because I also like to do new works. And so I like to be able to help create the universe. Um, I might be the first designer that works on a world that's been built, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be the last designer. But as most designers out there know, you look up what other designers have done to get an idea <laughs> or to go, okay, let's go in another direction. I, I don't understand why they did that. Um, and so for me, that's where the two kind of really influence each other because I do get distracted now when I go, Oh, you know, when in beating the beast, Emma Watson refused to wear a corset and as a statement of feminism. And while I heavily respect Emma Watson, um, my friend, Alison white, this is a quote from her. We did grad school together. And she was like, no women had to wear corsets. It's a thing. I'm sorry. The dress isn't going to fit you properly. If you're not in a flipping corset <laughs> and it is true. And so in that movie, the designer, heard what Emma's uh, heard what Emma's request was and then found a way to build a garment into the dress that existed. So she did not have to be in an additional corset. Now I'm not saying that was the correct decision, but it is the decision that they made because often people go, Oh, that costume looks stupid. It looks cheap. I don't like how that looks, but the typical fan hasn't sat through the hundreds of hours of design meetings and production meetings and, especially when we're talking, you know, Marvel, you can't do blue and yellow spandex on film because it wasn't meant to look right in comic books. It's still images and people can look like whatever they want. Right. But then when you're going to put Spider-Man turn off the dark on Broadway, you have to go, Oh shit, that's not going to work necessarily because human beings aren't shaped like that. Or, you know, he's going to have to physically move in this costume. What does that mean? Um, and so those are those things where it's like, I, I try to always enjoy what I'm watching, but I go, a lot of times I go, Ooh, my fashion history brain, <laughs> um, which is why I do kind of like watching those big fluffy costume dramas like Downton Abbey or uh, Bridgerton calling out to a contemporary show that everybody's watched recently. Um, when you can tell they really did their homework and have found the, the, the moments that work in the, the fabrics that work and how to do those kinds of things. That's where I can combine that nostalgia nerddom with what I do as a designer and how I work as a designer. How often, how often do those, uh, historical fictions like Downton Abbey or Bridgerton or Outlander, like how often do they get them right? A lot of times they get them very right. Um, Outlander specifically, I love a lot of what the designer did. And a lot of times they will switch costume designers between seasons. And so if you notice some shows, they look very different between seasons. It's because they just look different. Um, but like Outlander, I believe it was the same woman did the first few seasons and then someone took it over. Um, but like she made sure that she was sourcing her wools from the right place and the tartans were correct. And so, you know, but a lot of the time I'm also someone where as long as it's close, I like it. I do have friends who are very picky about it, but it is an interesting conversation where we also talk about, you know, if we can't see under someone's skirt, that, is it important that she's wearing 50 pounds worth of underskirting or can we use more modern technology? to make that easier for them to move in to work in or, you know, like, um, again, I'm going to go back to beating the beast one more time. The yellow dress was not in period, but Disney wanted the designer to make a dress that was easy to mass produce for the toys and mm. for the, the cosplay. And so they made the dress for the movie the way they would make it for mass production, which is not good because it looks cheap, but the dancer, the designer obviously spoke with the choreographer. They spoke about what it was going to look like. And so when she's swirling and dancing, it looks stunning and does exactly what it needs to. And so a lot of times we have to make those decisions or um, in musical theater, uh, especially now that we're getting a lot of musical adaptations, we have to bend reality in a way that's going to work feasibly through a, a film schedule or a long-term run. You want your hit musical to run for years. Um, and so you want to think about longevity for that as well. And so sometimes we do 
not have to cut corners, but we have to go with what's going to work for us in a contemporary setting versus being 100% historically accurate because the audience is still, you know, most of the time, the closest they get to a stage is going to be 40 feet, where in film, you can literally see the stitching sometimes. <laughs> um, like just a weird example, I was watching the premiere of the new Power Rangers series, Power Rangers Dino Fury, and... Uh, the alien prince that's in the first scene who comes from a prehistoric but slightly medieval society he's got this like sash skirt on and it's in a satin but they didn't hem or turn the edge so there is a raw edge with little pieces of string hanging off and it doesn't look intentional because it everything else is very clean edges Mm -hmm. and like leathers and metals and things and so it's just one of those things that in a theater piece i probably wouldn't have thought about it but because i'm watching it in four you know it was filmed in 4k high def i was watching it on a 66 inch high def television i could see the literal individual freight <laughs> edges so there are those moments of you know when we're working in a large project like that and a lot of times they will they've got these sh- shops that know exactly what they're doing and working with historical tailors that know exactly what they're doing because you have a giant fucking budget on something like Downton Abbey or Bridgerton or um, or um, Outlander or Game of Thrones, even um, using his historical references to create a fantasy world. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of times they do things right. And sometimes when they don't, I'm sure there's a reason why they didn't. And you're going to still be able to watch the show the same way anyway. So, you know. For the the few um, snotty costume people out there, you know, we're it's what we do, so we're going to be a little snotty about it. But everybody else loves it, and you know, people are able to recreate and do things like the the ability of a lot of contemporary cosplayers baffles me because they can they you see one image in a trailer and suddenly they have the most amazing <laughs> copy of that flipping costume done in two days. Um, I mean, you know, that it, it is insane. Yeah, it's fascinating. Or a friend of mine joked with me after the inauguration. She was like, I give it four hours before the first drag queen has a picture of that Lady Gaga Yves Saint Laurent on on uh, on Instagram. Sure enough, it was four hours and it was one of the Rue girls. So <laughs> there we go. So uh, then when was it in your mm-hmm. life where you decided – uh, costume design was where you wanted to go. Like what, what made you Ooh. choose that in for for college? So I was a fuck up in my twenties and you know, I graduated high school in 2003 and I was still coming out of the era where everybody had to go to college or trade school. You had to do something. Um, and I just was very sheltered and I wasn't ready for college and I flunked out of college so many times in my twenties at different schools, but I was always a very, I was a soft boy as they would say. Um, I am a homosexual. If you had not guessed already, our listeners at home, uh, cross that off on your bingo card. Um, but, um, yeah, so I was always into music and theater. I was a band kid through and through. I did drum corps and DCI and, or drum corps and WGI and, all sorts of things, but I did theater and I kind of got away from theater. And then I injured myself during uh, DCI summer once a uh, summer. And I was in living in Raleigh and I started doing community theater again. And then I decided to move to New York and went to a musical theater conservatory. So I did the actor thing in New York in my mid twenties uh, in the middle of the last largest recession we ever had. Um <laughs> And so I just started working theatrically. And so I was acting and stage managing and I was starting to costume design and house manage and kind of doing whatever. And, um, it wasn't until I worked for a theater in upstate New York, uh, I was a dresser for them and I fell into costume designing a show because I had some experience and it just, it was the first thing in a very, very long time that I'd done. And it just clicked And all the things that made me a prepared actor, but like, you know, you either know how to act or you don't. I'm, I'm a good campy musical theater actor. It's why I'm a good drag queen, but like, you know, I, I didn't wake up and want to perform every day. I was just a Leo. So I just do that in my daily life. But, uh, you know, (laughs) um, and 
I loved designing and I was working with this theater group at a community college. And so I was like 27 and I, I was finally at the right point to care about my education, realize that like I could keep going and be a bartender or a waiter who is doing theater calls and trying to make a break or trying to book a national tour or work as a dresser. Um, but I needed an education and I needed to learn the fine tune skills, the, the fine motor skills of being an artist. And that's when I, um, was living in this town and community college was pretty much free because I worked at a not-for-profit and was poor like most artists. And I found the most incredible undergrad program at the state university of New York at new Paltz. shout out to SUNY new Paltz and the incredible theater program there. Um, and the insanely supportive um, faculty. And so I, you know, I I'd, I'd worked professionally before. And so I just kind of flipped, flipped things around, um, uh, you know, doing, doing the thing. And uh, yeah, it just kind of clicked. And I started working with some really incredible, like young queer artists and writers and things. And that's where I found my passion for new works and developing new pieces of theater. Cause I was sick of the Oklahoma's and <laughs> even like the Laramie projects and the same 25 musicals and the same 10 plays that everybody was doing and reviving on Broadway every year. And it was just exhausting to me. And so then I knew I wanted to teach. And so then I went and got my master's, um, uh, to, uh, university of Florida, um, where I had some really amazing mentors that really kind of helped me flourish. Um, and I got to do some just really fucking weird stuff there, which was really cool. Um, but also, you know, learning to, to work on the classics and the importance of those educationally, um, and how they still give you that kind of background. And so it's, it kind of clicked at different points along the way. And I also feel, you know, there were points of that where I just wanted to give up and stop doing it. But I think those are those moments where you have to realize that's actually what you're meant to do. Because if you are mourning or grieving this idea of what you wake up every morning and think about doing, that means, yeah, that's what you should be doing. But if you, at the moment that you're thinking about throwing in the towel and you just huff and you're like, fine, I'm giving up. And then the next morning you wake up and you're grieving the idea that you might not ever do it again. It's also proof that that's what you need to do. And that's what you meant to be doing. Um, though it is interesting to think about the fact that I graduated in May of 2020 in the middle of a global pandemic <laughs> where all the theater industries in the world are shut down. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a, again, long story long, I'm a tangential person. So it's a kind of a different points along the way. Um, there, he just retired, but there's an amazing, he ran the theater program at the small community college in Auburn. Uh, his name's Bob frame. And he only does original works there. And, you know, sometimes the scripts aren't the best and you've got some kids who aren't the most amazing actors, but like Bob directs every show. He lighting designs a lot of the shows and he just kind of gave me carte blanche to be weird, be strange. And he would reel me in if he didn't feel like it was appropriate with the script, but it also gave me an excuse to be like, Oh, I'm the first person who's creating a visual for this world. So let's figure out what this world looks like. Um, the, like the first show I designed for them was two tobacco marketing executives die in a car accident and get sent to hell and they negotiate their way out back to their lives. If they can help the devil remarket hell as a resort where mortals could come and watch people who they hated in their lives be tortured. <laughs> and the devil was this like, see rundown old CEO who's just bored and his assistant is Eve of Adam and Eve. And she's just this like wise cracking dry broad. And so just this getting to create what a realistic version of hell with a likable devil character was. And these things were really kind of opened up my eyes to all of our abilities of storytellers and what we can do in so many different ways. And so I really attest to kind of Bob's faith in what I was doing and the fact that he paid me to do what I wanted to do and do ridiculous things was so wonderful. Um, and it's really why I have a pension for new works and helping people further their ideas of, of new theater. Also at new Paltz, we had this great, 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 uh, club called fresh act, which was just 10 minute one acts, um, 
or shorter. Um, and sometimes you did scenes from plays, but a lot of times you developed new works with some writers and you got to direct with nothing, absolutely nothing. And it really helped me cut my teeth and kind of figure out what it meant to kind of direct and design and all those things. And so it's, those are those moments where it's never in the classroom that it's connected for me. Mm -hmm. Um, or even necessarily in watching my, my work on stage. It's those moments in the room of having an argument with the director about why we need something and then going, okay, let's break the script down. Let's, let's look at the script of why you want this and why we all think it should be this way and finding that equitable middle of the road where it is still the director's vision, but it's also the most accurate version of what we can give and uh, show the audience on stage um, and how we can use our voices as artists to further the world we're living in, which is a kind of fucked up place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean that yeah yeah I, I yeah. agree. Uh on your road to yeah. uh doing costume design, what's the biggest surprise that you've come across? The thing that you weren't expecting? Oh god. <laughs> um that I I've always been kind of an aggressive person because you know, typical chubby chubby weird kid bullied a lot um that I surprisingly enough have a gift of being able to be a mediator in a room full of really narcissistic creatives to help us all get somewhere. Um, and I can talk some of the most difficult directors off of a ledge or get them to leave the hill that they think they're going to die on. Those were some things that have shocked me along the way because Mm -hmm. I'm normally such, I'm a reactionary person that then sometimes has to deal with the ramifications of my actions and my behavior. Um, You know, being a Leo, it's just a thing being, being a very boisterous person. That's just a thing that I've had to learn to deal with. And, you know, it sucks sometimes because I fucked some shit up. Um, But those moments of learning where um, to quote, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton, which I'm so sorry. It's talk less, smile more. And those are those moments of learning that like, I don't always have to be right. I don't have to gloat that I'm right. Because if I can lead us all to that point where I go, this is exactly what I was trying to say without having to say that. And we can continue on the road to give the best possible film or theatrical production. That's all I need at the end of the day. And so that's been one of those moments of, I went from being a very self-centered person uh, where it was about, Oh, what is it? What is it about that? People think of me in the play. What, what about what I'm doing to, well, what about what we all did together? What about this entire production as a whole? Um, And, and did what I, my part of this best serve the entirety of the team. And so putting my hubris aside, I think for me was, that moment of learning to be like, girl, you don't have to be a piece of shit anymore. And I go, Oh, girl, you right. <laughs> I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of conversations in the mirror with myself where I just go, girl, really girl. And I go, yeah. Girl. Um, <laughs> um, also uh, to go with that, it's that I don't have to be bullshit humble about what I do. It is okay to, to have confidence and speak with authority that what I do, I do well. Um, and that is why someone's hiring me to do the job because I can solve for them the problem that they need, which is that they need a designer and I can do it best for them. And so, you know, it's those moments of kind of switching. I think for me, that moment that surprised me the most along the way was that I was able to molt my narcissism into something useful because, you know, oddly enough, I being the like, not super attractive chubby kid who never had too many friends. You don't think that you can be a narcissist, but I would argue being the bully kid makes you one of the most narcissistic people ever because (laughs) you suddenly just think so much about everything you do. And, um, and yeah, so it's the thing that was the, the biggest kind of, Oh fuck moment. Um, um, and also just that people legitimately can like you for who you are and can compliment you and not, mean it backhandedly because you do do a good job. (laughs) (laughs) So again, kind of answering your question with a question, long story long, but that is, yeah, I think that would be those moments. Cause you know, I could always pull different things out of 
different moments. Um, but also I think the I used to be the person where I thought I would always be the most starstruck, but I've been hired by multiple companies to be the person who has a large personality that deals with difficult personalities. Um, and, uh, the fact that I've developed that skill of being able to be the person that speaks to a famous person as if they are not a famous person and that they have a job to do. And I'm here to help them do that job and be the best that they can be. Um, (laughs) it's a good skill. And, it is a good skill and it's, you know, it's led to meeting some very interesting people, uh, people who I, you know, would go home and scream and fangirl over later, but you know, in the moment of being able to keep that composure and kind of keep a professional poker face up, I think were the things that have ultimately surprised me the most along the way about myself because <laughs> I have literally no chill. If anyone knows me, you know, I have the lack of chill. So, um, Yeah. <laughs> So if someone wanted to uh carry on that path go go to go go towards the costume designer path what what's the best advice you would you would give them Really think about why you want to do it what you want to do and what story you want to tell because everyone has an individual take of their own that is so unique and so themselves um I think really thinking about why you want to do what you want to do and make sure that it is really what you think about. It's really what drives you. Um, and I'm going to tell you, don't worry about not being the best artist. Don't worry about not being able to be the most conceptual because that is what an education is about, but also never discredit the interdisciplinary nature of a liberal arts education. I think it has set me apart as a creative so much. And the fact that I have a background in women's studies and history along with theater. Um, and like the fact that I took too many queer theory courses in women's history, it means I can walk in a room and not need to speak for another group of marginalized people, but I can understand the struggle and the journey and why it's important that we're telling those stories um, also to enough to be like, yeah, we don't need an all white room. We don't need all white team. Sorry. This isn't about me. Um, <laughs> but never second guess why you need an education and find the right institution that works for you. You don't need to go to the NYU's and the Carnegie Mellon as they have an amazing education program, but they're not for everybody finding the right fit for the place that is going to feed your creativity and help you be the best artist is the most amazing thing you can do and the most important thing you can do um and the nice thing is we're at a point where most people are like yeah it is cool to go be a theater major it is cool to go major in a design or something um uh and just know that you don't know everything and that's okay because you can rely on other people to teach you what they know because that's what we ultimately need to do at the other day end of the day is think about educating each other and we learn things from each other and that's, what's really important. So don't second guess yourself, find a place that is going to be right for you and don't be afraid that you're not good enough because we all have to start at a point. And if you work hard enough, you can learn to do anything. That's what I would say for anybody that really wants to go. I mean, I would really much be anything in the arts, like just, also know it's going to be hard and it's not easy. Um, and don't ruin your credit score when you're in your early twenties. Please just don't do it. No, that's just good advice all around. Credit. Yeah. Just don't. Don't. Okay. <laughs> Favorite moment from any production in, in any point, any, any, any capacity that you were involved. Like you, ah, if you were acting, if you were a stage manager, ah, if you were a costume designer, ah, I have, so many because I've been lucky enough to be part of really great productions. Um, I think any time, Oh, there've been several where you, um, so I designed a play called rough magic. Um, Oh God, I forget. It's uh, the guy that wrote Sabrina and Riverdale. He's the showrunner for both of those. He wrote a play when he was at Yale about a magic dramaturg who can pull characters out of plays and books if they speak out to her. Her name is Melanie and she lives in New York city. And we learn that Prospero from the tempest is a very bad man who was a dark wizard and actually was locked away on this Island and through a, through a unfortunate 
series of events, Caliban, who is actually a very sexy, sexy man, um, steals Prospero's book of magic, which is made from Viola from 12th night. Wow. Um, I know it's, it's, it's a doozy. Um, I'm just going to say it's not a good fucking script, but God, it's a fun one. Um, <laughs> it's very Sabrina. Um, and Melanie, this dramaturg ends up having to fight Prospero in New York. Uh, and Ariel, uh, the, this fairy is an evil entity and it's, it's this whole thing, but she summons, um, um, Marcus Lycus out of Julius Caesar. Mm, somebody's going to misquote me on in a book, a bookstore run by Shylock from the merchant of Venice that she, he's running this tiny little bookshop. And so we were creating this moment of trying to figure out how to make it work. And so, you know, you have to make a character literally appear on stage. And we had a very blank stage with just some boxes and a giant projection screen. Hmm. And it was a rake stage. And so the magic aspects of the play were really difficult. Like Caliban turns into a fish monster on stage. Like he collapses in one scene and then gets up the next scene and is a fully like Kaiju monster man. Um, like, and uh, so the shape of things or the shape of water, the shape. Yes. The shape of water. Yeah. And which thankfully shape of water had come out the year before this. So I had some references there, but I'm not copying del Toro. Cause he's amazing. And we didn't have that kind of, <laughs> yeah. um, but so she's summoning, um, Marcus, oh, Caius Marcus, Marcus Caius from <laughs> this play out of a field of war. And so he's supposed to just appear out of nowhere covered in blood and just be this thing. So I sat down with our designers and we finally came with this moment. I was like, whoa, 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 what if, what if from behind one of the boxes, we hide a trap door and um, he's underlit and out of nowhere, a bloody hand erupts out of the stage and slams onto the box. And then sl- another one comes up and slams. And then we see this giant Roman general appear up out of the floor. And the whole point was our director wanted, she hates using a full proscenium stage because we had very deep proscenium stage and she only wants to use the apron. Well, for any lighting designers out there, you know that there's typically the shittiest lighting ever <laughs> is just on the fucking apron. And we have to do sleight of hand magic and make people fly and float and do all this bullshit. And if you're four feet away from the audience, you can't effectively do any of that because it is supposed to be scary at different points. People die on stage, but there's also like three drag queens that appear out of nowhere. Um, you know, it's just, it's so fucked. And so being able to kind of help lead the team of the other two designers where we could convince her that we wanted to, uh, put that, put that, um, set because the whole argument was we need the set to be 10 feet back from where you want it to be we need to and so kind of getting those moments and then getting to run out to the audience during previews and watch that moment happen and it literally chilled me to the bone so fucking cool it was really really great and there have just been a, a few moments along the way where um you know getting getting to tell stories as a character um in one of the plays that I did at Cayuga, um, I costume designed and I had to act in some of them as well, just cause we didn't have a ton of people. And I was, it was a vignette show and a character I was playing. He and his wife were old hippies, but she had cancer and they didn't have health insurance. And so they were selling all of their worldly possessions to help pay for her to go through cancer treatment. And, I'm normally very sticky. I'm very funny. I'm a camp queen. And so having to, even though you're playing this hippie and of course I gave him a little bit of a heightened accent and he was a little old and hunched over and that was fine. And <laughs> having to have a director that kind of forced me, he was like, pull the bullshit away, pull the fucking bullshit away. Your character doesn't know they're funny. Don't be fucking sticky. Just strip it away and kind of help tell the most honest story because it was one of those where every scene's kind of fucked up and the audience is supposed to go oh shit that's fucked we live in a very fucked world to have an audience member come up later in tears and go i literally just lost my dad to cancer and this was very similar to what my parents were going through and to see that you and lizzie did this with such grace and decorum and delicacy he's like i just i can't thank you enough and so like 
it's just those moments that I think have can affect people and move people and um, cause people to really think um, for my thesis at UF, I got to work with an incredible director named Ryan Hope Travis. And we did a play called Jackie Jack, by Jackie Sibley's jury called we are proud to present. It's got a very, very long title, um, but it's about a group of contemporary actors who are telling the story of the Herero people in Africa when the Germans kind of came in and committed mass genocide pre-World War One, um, And it's told through the guise of how we unpack contemporary racism and violence, uh, as well as like Civil War era slavery, racism and violence, and how it's always kind of the same throughout the world. And getting to watch audiences of white Southern people be really uncomfortable and be forced to address their own latent biases um, through having to experience the trauma of a character on stage. There's a very dark moment just for trigger warnings. I won't go into, but um, having to watch a very violent action happen to an actor on stage and you know, I'd read the play. I'd been with the play for five months and you're going through a master's thesis. So I've written hundreds of pages on this play that had literally six costumes in it. Um, to then sit and watch and feel this room of people. And like, I had to walk out the first night just because I hadn't thought about a lot of my own biases and a lot of things that I had lately went and going, you know, I'm a woke white person. I don't feel that way, blah, blah, blah. And to then the first night with audiences and, have to sit down with my students and they go, I'm really uncomfortable because I realized I saw a lot of myself in this. How can we do this better? And starting that conversation with young artists, I think has been such a standout. And so getting to work with Ryan and our amazing group of actors to help do that and help them build their characters in a way where no one mentioned me, uh, the costumes in any theatrical review. None of the kids wrote about my costumes in any of the intro to theater um, papers. And to me, that's okay because it means I did my job and those characters felt like the most real human beings they could. They felt like your classmates, your siblings. They felt like yourself. Um, and so for me, I never necessarily now, I've realized it's not about if I get called out in a review or they talk about my work. I think it's actually better if you don't talk about the design work because it means it was probably a very boring play or a poorly performed play if all they focus on is the design aspects. <laughs> so um, I think for me, those have just been a couple key moments along the way of just getting to do things. Um, uh, but even getting to tour with shows or do things and just see new audiences being affected um, just being a general Disney adult, I went to Disneyland for the first time two years ago. I saw they do a one an hour and some change Frozen musical at the Hyperion Theater in California Adventure. And they have had a very diverse cast. And a lot of times they will work things out there before it goes to Broadway or an out of town to see if they can work little things out. And at this performance, an African-American Elsa was, uh, African-American actress was performing Elsa. And we had an Asian actresses, Anna, and like it was a super diverse cast. And it was very good that, you know, they don't need to make a comment about it. They just cast the best people and a little girl behind me. She'd been kind of talking through the show. It kind of annoyed me, whatever. And then when grown Elsa comes out for the coronation and she goes, mommy, she looks just like me. I didn't know I could be Elsa mommy. And Mm. I started sobbing because again, in that moment, it wasn't about me, but I was in the room watching it and it just reminded me and gave me another kind of lesson to talk with my students or to bring into every theater I work with of what we should really be doing. Because ultimately every time you go see a movie, you're, you could be sitting next to a legendary filmmaker. Who's going to make the most pivotal film of the next 20 years in that moment, but they're a kid. And so you're annoyed because they talk through it or I had friends that were in SpongeBob and when I went and saw SpongeBob, I was, I was annoyed because I was like, I don't want to see SpongeBob the musical. Fuck everybody. (laughs) And like one, it was so good. Watch it on, it's on Amazon. It's on Nickelodeon. Watch it. Ethan Slater is a godsend of SpongeBob. Um, But seeing these kids who are from Long Island and Staten Island who are locals, 
going, yo, mom, do we have theater near us? I want to go see theater. This was so cool. Um, I didn't know theater was this cool. You know, it's it sounds stupid and silly and pedantic, but if if any every show I work on could inspire one or two kids in that way or inspire a grown adult who's deciding to retire because they've been an accountant and they just don't love it, but they want to go and they want to be an actor, like, fuck, f- quit your job, go be an actor, like, do that thing, go join your community theater. Um, so if if everything I work on can do those kinds of things for people, that would just make me, I think the most happy at the end of the day. That's, that's, that's incredible. Uh, go ahead. A Tony award would be nice too, but like awards are <laughs> stupid and bullshit. So like, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> uh, I mean, you're in good company with Gary Oldman with that. One. <laughs> True. Uh, what's the one story production that you would be okay with never seeing again. Oh, okay. Oklahoma. Let's start with that. <laughs> Fuck you, Oklahoma. Um, uh, there's a, a big conversation happening because, you know, in most regional theaters, you have to appeal to getting new people in, but also understand that your subscribers are all old white people and old white people love old white shows. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, there's a conversation happening academically and professionally of, is it time to put some of these shows as, as library pieces, as textbook pieces, as classroom pieces, where we talk about the importance of the dream ballet and Agnes DeMille's choreography that revolutionized telling story through dance and musical theater, which was so important about Oklahoma. Um, but I think I, let me rephrase. I think all stories are worth telling if you're going to give them the right view and you're going to tell them from the proper historical background. Um, you know, we need to realize that Oklahoma is dirty and dark and a, not a good place to be in. And it comes with anti-Semitic and racist roots and comes with the idea of colonialism. Um, you know, things like the music man, we don't fucking need it anymore. <laughs> They're just some of these shows, a lot of these golden age shows, which were revolutionary in their time. They're just not anymore. Um, I, I think probably also something like South Pacific, wherever, where all white people think they're solving racism through doing South Pacific. And while, yes, it was a commentary on racism in its time, much like West Side Story. If you're not doing them as either a pure recreation of what it would have been like to watch it in 1955, or you're trying to make it an actual historical piece, I'm not sure it's relevant for us to do them anymore. And I know people at home probably have a lot to say about that, and they're probably your favorites. I'm sorry, that original West Side Story movie is brilliant and beautiful, and Natalie Wood is just so tragically forlorn as Maria, and it's beautiful. Um, Also... I'm just going to say Jersey boys. I never need to see Jersey boys again. <laughs> <laughs> we don't community theater, mama Mia and Jersey boys, but you know, it's one of those things where just because something's not going to be for me, it doesn't mean it's not for the general audiences and the Jersey boys. Um, it's like there's um Janine Tesori is an incredible musical theater writer. She did thoroughly modern Millie, Caroline or change Shrek, the musical fun home. And for every, thoroughly modern Millie, we get a Carolina change. And for every Shrek, we get a fun home. And so I think a lot of times we need those bubblegum shows. We need those golden age shows because they're also going to inspire a kid that he wants to be Nathan Detroit one day. And that is okay. Um, but I think we need to stop. Oh, oh, also carousel carousel. I think I'm sorry. I'm being so tangential. Long story long. Um, probably carousel because it's essentially he beats you because he loves you the musical. And there's really, there is really no way to justify that other than that. You want to do a big soaring piece. Um, Also, because typically a lot of theater companies argue that you don't need racial diversity because there wasn't racial diversity in the original casts. And that's just not a valid argument anymore. And so a lot of times if we can't do the correct thing with these, we need to just not do them. Mm Mm-hmm. It's also like your high schools don't need to do an all white once on this island, all white little shop or an all white dream girls. None of those are things you need to do just because you think you have a little white girl that can sing the shit out of T moon. 
there are little white girls in every other play or musical out there. Pick something else because it is also, you don't need to do hairspray if you don't have the right cast for it. They're just, we're at a turning point where I think we need to kind of radicalize our industry in a way we haven't before. And it's going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. And I th- I'm okay with that. I like white make, I like making white people uncomfortable. It somehow <laughs> makes me feel less of a terrible white person. If the work I do makes white people. uncomfortable. <laughs> so it's a very, again, a very broad answer to a very specific question that you ask, but um, I love I'll, you know what? If it's a good, beautiful production, I'll sit through almost anything because I'm going to find something redeemable out of it. Or I've probably gotten really high in the parking lot beforehand, <laughs> and I'm going to enjoy the shit out of it anyway. So <laughs> it's probably, probably you know, I'll, I'll enjoy it no matter what. But I, I love it. I love it. Uh, so <laughs> you, we talked about nostalgia. We talked about Disney. Mm-hmm. We talked about theater. We've talked about all that stuff. What's the thing? that you geek out about that no one would suspect. <sighs> oh god. Well, uh, I don't know. I'm pretty Oh, I am a big weeb. I'm a huge old weeb. Big old <laughs> weeb. Um but I specifically love anything cutesy and magical girl, which again, if you know me, you're probably rolling your eyes right now. But um, yeah, I'm a big fucking weeb. I'm a big nerd. Um, I, oh, apparently this is weird for a lot of people. They, I don't look like a thing. I'm a hardcore D&D player. Um, so like, that's just something I love Dungeons and Dragons. I love tabletop role-playing games. Um, uh, anybody that wants to do a magical girl based called Cthulhu, out there i'm <laughs> here for you let's do it um also my best friend oz has just gotten me into wrestling and so i'm a pretty big nerd for wrestling currently so again very broad but i'd probably say D D or something um or just the fact that i like watching sports mm-hmm. i love hockey hockey i would I just, I love hockey. I have been thrown out of Madison square garden twice for starting fights during Rangers games. Um, <laughs> still went back and saw spice girls and Gaga there. <laughs> Suck on that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I get, I'm pretty upfront about the things I love. So, and I get very passionate about them because I can't like anything casually. I cannot like anything <laughs> casually. Um, yeah. So probably D and D, uh, and, and now I'm getting in wrestling, getting into that wrestling. Um, and, uh, yeah, some sports I grew up as I played sports growing up. So it's, it's fun. Uh, you know, I can kind of pass this straight until I just scream. Yes, bitch. Throw midway through the game. <laughs> cause, cause I get a little too drunk in the parking lot before I go in. It's, it's just a theme. It is a theme. Last question for you. What yeah. what is the if you could have one completely useless superpower, what would it be? And it has to be useless. Useless superpower. Yeah. I know I'm I'm kind of just throwing this one out there with with no uh no no lead up or or let this, you know. It's so funny. It just makes me think of Meg Griffin from that episode of Family Guys <laughs> where they all get the superpowers <laughs> and just her nails can grow. Yeah. Um Oh God. I think I would love it if I could just control. Okay. I'm in, I can control the amount and color of hair that grows on any part of my body. (laughs) (laughs) Not like Medusa from Marvel. Like I can't control it. She doesn't do Rapunzel things, but like maybe it's just as a bald person who thinks he's kind of cute, but be would be way cuter if I had hair. Like I would be y'all would y'all would have to be careful because I come for all y'all mans. Um, Yeah. I think it would probably just that I could make my hair grow or like fall out and then regrow as a different color. I think would probably be my weird superpower. I love it. I love it. Uh, Maddie, I could listen to you talk for hours. Thank you for being on the show. Please tell everybody where it is. They can find you and your podcast. Well, my only fans, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I've been joking. I want to start an only fans. That's just me with like cosplay flan. Like I dress flan up in cosplay. I think it'd be really funny. Um, Cause I mean, otherwise I'm built for a very niche market. Um, okay. Sorry. Um, but you can find me, um, 
on through any of uh, my earth social media. We are Saturday morning confidential on Facebook. So if you just facebook.com backslash SMC pod, we are also at SMC pod on Instagram um, because Twitter hates me. I'm still at, at Dole Whip podcast on Twitter. Um, I'm appealing to them to let me change my at, but they won't, I can't change it right now. Um, and both on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, there is a link tree to every single, um, every platform that Saturday morning confidential is on. Um, uh, where you can find certain POV, all of our side projects. I also like to do lots of little sideshows. So I have another sideshow called um, Isolation Cast Voices from Quarantine that I started in March of last year um, that I will periodically bring back and interview people. Um, I, in November, I did a daily short fictional podcast called inklings um because i have been writing since i was a kid and i've never shared it with anyone because i've been terrified of rejection um so for inktober i wrote 30 stories and i produced 18 of them as um full little audio dramas that i did full foley art underneath because i was like i don't know how to edit and build foley art let's go out and do this Mm because we're in quarantine um and then that also features one story by a friend of the pod pat edwards um and uh, a friend of mine gabe martinez and so all of those things are all on saturday morning confidential um as well and i've got a couple shows coming up that are in the works but if you follow us on social media you will find us so saturday morning confidential on facebook follow the link tree and you will find us everywhere that we are there you go. Make sure you go out and follow uh, Maddie and all the productions. Um, if you want to follow me, I am at Mitchipedia, G-E-M. G-E-M stands for Geek Elite Media. The rest of Geek Elite Media is at Geek Elite Media on Twitter, at Geek Elite Media on Instagram, and Facebook.com forward slash Geek Elite Media is our Facebook page. Check out archived episodes of this podcast and other podcasts on our website, geekleetmedia.com. Check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash media for exclusive material that you can only get if you're one of our patrons. And whatever podcatcher you use, please rate and review us so it helps uh, spread the word of our network. But until next time, this is Hey Mitch on the Geek Elite Media Network saying always remember to geek out. This concludes our broadcast. Peace.